Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Hey, this weekend my family got um, a dose of Daddy the General Contractor. Um, on one of the days, we hauled 20 bags of 60-pound concrete into my basement, mixed them all up in a wheelbarrow, and then, of course, dumped them onto the floor because there was a big old open hole. It was like earth was in my basement. And we, we covered the hole and, and made a new cement slab so that one day, Lord willing, there will be a laundry room and a bathroom down there for the family to use. Um, so that was one of the projects this weekend. And then the other one was, um, I did a bit of electrical. So um, I am by no means an electrician. And <laughs> let me just tell you, like for those of you in the church or if you're watching and you're not part of the church, like we've hired some of this project and I have such respect for someone who works within the trades because like the work that you do is so challenging. <laughs> I feel it bodily. I feel it. Um, but, but electrical is kind of fun. Electrical is fun because you kind of get to see how things connect up and then what powers, say, like the outlet, you know, in your living room or the lights um, or the appliances that you use every day. And if, if you're a homeowner, um, or maybe if not, you're probably familiar with two of the ways that electrical can go sideways. Just very general, right? Like you can, you can plug the toaster, the waffle maker, the, the coffee maker, and then whatever, the microwave oven, I don't know, all into the same outlet, and then what happens? The breaker trips, right? Like, I've, seriously, this has happened to my family where all of a sudden you're halfway through making a waffle, and then it's just mush. And how do you get it? Then you get a burnt waffle, and then instead of a good waffle, when you start, the, start back up. But you got to go down to the panel where the electrical stuff is, and then flip the breaker back on. Because you've tried to draw too much amperage from that outlet. Now, the other thing can happen um, with electrical as well. You can um, draw so much that things get fried. Or perhaps there's a surge with a power outage and it fries some of your electronics or it flies an, fries an appliance or something like that. There's too much power being pumped into what you're using and therefore it rends, renders it broken. You know, we're going to talk about power today. I mean, it's interesting that power has a certain way that you need to work with it, a certain way that you must connect up to it. We'll get there in a moment. Um, before we do, I'd like to just quickly recap last week where we found out that there was no love for Jesus on Valentine's Day. The last chapter, chapter 2, there's no love for Jesus. He's starting to get critiqued. He's starting to get questioned by all of these different groups of people. And uh, I want to read you the last section there because it sets up chapter 3 pretty well. This is verse 1 of chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And Jesus said to them all, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them, grieved, angry at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians 
that they might destroy him. Jesus don't get no love in chapter 2. And what we see is at the beginning, this story here, where the Pharisees and the Herodians start to come together to figure out how do they destroy Jesus, we see really clearly that the response to Jesus from these religious groups is to reject him. And all of chapter 3 is really about responding to Jesus. That's what we're going to look at today. Remember, in order to get what Mark is saying, you've got to zoom out a bit to the forest. The trees matter. All of the details matter. But the forest, these stories stacked together, make sense of the, the whole. Okay, so here's what we're going to see today. When it comes to responding to Jesus, there really are only two options. You can reject him or you can receive him. Responding to Jesus, there are really two options. You can reject him or you can receive him. So what I want to do today is help you see how some of the first hearers of Jesus rejected him in different ways and then show you how a certain group received him. And then, of course, we've got to respond to the Lord Jesus today, too. So let's go. You can respond to the power of King Jesus by rejecting him. Pick it up with me in verse 7. Jesus withdrew, withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from all around Tyre and Sidon. The crowd heard all that he was doing and they came. Listen, Jesus is a big deal, right? This is like the entirety of Israel and the surrounding area has been hearing about this guy and they're flocking out just to see him, to somehow be a part of the experience of him. And whether you believe what Christians do about Jesus or not, from the history books, those of the Jews who clearly rejected him and those of the Romans who were governing over the area, it was clear that he was, Jesus was there in the first century. And that he made a pretty big splash. And this is veritably true. Crowds were flocking to him. And he, and he told his disciples to have the boat ready because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed so many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. He strictly ordered them not to make him known. How do the crowds respond to Jesus? Well, it's interesting. With all of their pressure upon him, what's clear throughout the story is that the crowds actually would like to control him. The crowds are about getting from him. They're demanding of Jesus to meet their needs and it becomes pretty clear in the story, to meet their needs on their terms. There's this mounting social pressure upon Jesus to perform and to do. You see even his disciples in the early chapters of the Gospel of Mark saying, hey, where are you going? Everyone's looking for you to do things for them. And he instead retreats in prayer and says, no, I've got to go on to the other towns so that I can continue to speak about the kingdom of God. So there's pressure, and they demand, almost seeking to control this miracle worker, getting him to do what they would like him to do. Perhaps you can relate. Like if, if Jesus would just do what you would ask, right? If Jesus would just heal what you want, if Jesus would just work in how you feel is needed, that everything would be great. You think that if you could just control the power of Jesus, 
life would be good. But the truth is, controlling Jesus is a lot like working with hot electrical wires. It's not good to let your hands touch them as the power runs through. You weren't made for that. You're not a good conductor. <laughs> At least it doesn't leave you well. When you seek to control Jesus, in effect, you reject Jesus. Let's read on. Verse 13. And they went up on the mountain and called to him, and he called to them him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Okay, here we are. We have someone receiving Jesus. I want to actually skip this and come back. Let's keep thinking about those who reject Jesus and what that looks like. So hop down with me. There's the, there's the apostles, the disciples. They receive him, and we'll be there in a minute. But scroll down with me if you've got your phone or your book, and look at verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed of Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But... No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he indeed may plunder his house. We'll read this stuff about the Holy Spirit in a minute, okay? But do you see the scribes' response to Jesus? The scribes seek to censure Jesus. Right? Like he's, They're censoring him, trying to destroy his credibility, saying, hey, this guy you think is good in doing miracles, he's really the opposite. You think the power is good, but really the power is dark. They are seeking to defend their own place and their own power within the Jewish religious system, and they want to destroy his credibility by slapping a label on him that he is actually possessed by a demon. Now, there's a lot of spiritual stuff in here that is foreign to our modern ears and perhaps modern eyes. But it's not too far-fetched for us to put labels upon Jesus, right? Like, can, can we just label him a good teacher, receiving the things we like in here and the things that we don't like discarding? Can we just label him an interesting myth, for us to learn from? Can we label him like the rest of the spiritual guides of old that we kind of take to help us live a good life? Now, you think that if you could just label Jesus something other than Lord of all, things would go well for you. You could keep your place and you could keep him in his. But the truth is that historical accounts like historians from Rome and from Israel, and biblical accounts like this where a biography of Jesus help us see that we can't do that. Both, both the extra-biblical and the biblical accounts give eyewitnesses that crazy stuff was happening in the first century. We cannot say, hey, he's just a good instructor. The great author and defender of the faith in the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, said, we cannot just say teacher. He is either a liar, he's a lunatic, which is what the scribes would say, or he is the Lord of all. 
Jesus is saying, listen, when it comes to kingdoms, what sense would it make for me to be possessed by a demon and then casting out demons? That would be the crippling of a kingdom of darkness. But let me give you another take. If you see a kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, crumbling before you, perhaps it's because one stronger than all evil forces is here. One stronger than anything that could oppress, enslave, harm is here. One stronger is here that has bound Satan and is plundering his house, bringing all that was lost into the area that is found, bringing all that was dark into the light. You see, when you seek to censure Jesus, you reject him as well. Okay, now let's, let's, let's keep going here. Because you've got this really interesting bit about the Holy Spirit that everybody loves to geek out about. And we don't really need to when we zoom out to the forest. Right? You zoom out to the forest, what's going on here? People are rejecting Jesus. We're seeing the first responses to the Lord Jesus and his ministry. And here you have a warning from Jesus. Truly I say to you, in verse 28, all sins will be forgiven of the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin or an everlasting sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. What's going on here? I think, from all of my reading and study, what's going on here is Jesus is envisioning that they have rejected him as the person, a first witness. And if these crowds reject the Holy Spirit as a second witness to the truth that he is God's son, and of course, we'll get to the book of Acts in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit clearly testifies that Jesus is the Son of the living God. If people reject both Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, there is no hope of forgiveness. They've dug their heels in and there is no even seeking of forgiveness that it might be found. It's not labeling a separate kind of sin, but Jesus is actually saying, hey, if you reject and if you reject, if you set yourself in a certain way, there will be no turning around or repentance for you and therefore no forgiveness. Okay, let's look at the last group, okay? The last group, his family. You see this in verse 20. They went home, Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again at his home so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind, and then jump down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, standing outside. They sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And looking about at those around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The family comes to Jesus. Yes, Jesus had brothers and a mother and sister. And they come and they try and contain him. They think he's out of control. This is madness. All of these crowds and all that's happening. Jesus, what are you doing? And they seek to rein him in, containing him, declaring he's out of his mind. They're, they're applying cultural pressure. 
to Jesus. You see, in the first century, the family unit was of incredible importance. The entirety of their society was built upon the family together, the family business, even the family household, extended family all living in the same place. And for Jesus to go against his family of origin would have been incredibly taboo. And so Jesus is facing the cultural pressure of his own family coming against him and saying, can we rein it in? But does Jesus play nice with our cultural expectations? Some of us wish he would. Does he give, give himself to just sort of keeping with the family norms or even the American societal norms? No. Against one of the greatest pressures in his day, the family, Jesus stands for what he believes is true, which is people doing the word of God. And perhaps you think, that if you could just contain Jesus to a certain area, keeping his power so it doesn't get out of control, things would be good. But the truth is, whenever you contain Jesus, you reject Jesus. Jesus, as we see in the beginning of the chapter, is grieved at their hardness of heart. Maybe you haven't noticed this, but Jesus is all about heart. Like he's, he wants all of them and he wants all of you. He wants this, the entirety, the core of who you are. And he'll suffer for nothing less. You know, at the Sensky household on the weekends, there are two things that go together. Pancakes and love songs. I don't know what it is about it, but like Jack Johnson got it right. Making banana pancakes, baby. Right? So like there's something about love songs and pancakes. Like, and it's not always the same kind of music, but we always listen to some kind of music like that while we're having pancakes on a Saturday morning. And it wasn't Jack Johnson. It was another artist I was listening to. And the lyrics really caught my attention as I've been meditating on these verses. It says, you can lock me up. You can't lock me up and tell me about freedom. You can't have me if I can't have you. You can't take it with you when you're gone. Did you catch that? You can't have me if I can't have you. That's a love song, right? You can't take my love with you when you go. If you've sought to control, if you've sought to censure, if you've sought to contain Jesus, you, you think you can have him without giving him you. But haven't you seen? The king is after your heart. He's after all of you. Let's see those who respond to Jesus quickly here. This is um, chapter 3, picking up in verse 13. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. Stop. He calls them. Who does he call? Those who he wants. Those who he wants. Do you believe that, church? Like when Jesus calls to you, it's because he wants you. Because he desires you. Because he's, he's interested in you. Because he loves you. Like he calls those who he desires. And then what do they do? They come to him. There's so much we could do in this passage. I just want to show you the progression, right? So he calls them. They come to him. 
And then what's he do? He appoints the 12. That sounds really formal, but it's the same language that he used to call the first fishermen. He says, I will make you fisher of men. Same word as appoint. He's saying, I will fashion you. I will create in you. I will form in you the kind of people who are sent by me. And what would they do? They would, they'd be, they would come to him and what would they get to do? They get to be with him. He wants them to come to him so they could be with him. Do you hear that? Jesus wants you to come to him. He wants to be with you. He wants you to be with him. Like, it doesn't get any better than that. And even beyond that, so that he could send. He could send out to preach, and he gave authority so he could send with his own power. And then he appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, tough one to pronounce, that is sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew, Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, whom betrayed him. I mean, what do you need in order to come to Jesus when you're called by him? What do, you, what do you need in order to come to Jesus when you're called by him? Simple. You need your weakness and his strength. That's it. That's it. In order to come to Jesus when you're called by him, you need your own weakness and you need his strength. You need your own need and you need his power. That's it. You didn't bring anything else to the table. It's all by grace, like righteousness by faith. Jesus is saying, come and be with me. And guess what I'm going to give you? I'm going to teach you everything you need to be sent. I'm going to equip you with all the power you would need to go. I will provide all you need. Just bring your weakness and take my strength. That's what it means to receive him. And church, you can respond to Jesus today. It's my last point. And I, I would say you must respond to Jesus today. This scripture says you must respond to the Lord Jesus today. And before you do, can I just persuade you for a moment as I reflect on his power to receive him and not reject him? Look at this. Watch this. This, when you take in the forest, and then you flip it onto the Old Testament, which is what Mark is doing, you start to see it sparkle. Watch. Jesus. Jesus is strong enough, powerful enough, to lead all people, even you. Look at him here with the crowds, clamoring against him, pressuring him. Jesus, in that moment, what's he doing? He's, he's one, he's leading himself. He's already gotten away in prayer and he knows where to go and where the Father wants him to go. He's leading himself. He's leading his crew saying, hey, you watch out for the crowd and get the boat ready. Let's think ahead. This is what we need. He's leading the crowds. He's speaking to them still, healing them, instructing them. He's leading the critics that are complaining about him, telling him what he should be doing and shouldn't be doing. He is strong enough to lead all people, even you, the religious of his day would have looked to Moses, the great leader. But Moses wasn't strong enough under the pressure of the crowds. He caved and never saw the promised land. 
But there is one greater than Moses here. There is a prophet greater than Moses here, strong enough to handle any kind of social pressure. Jesus is strong enough to lead all people. Does he lead you? Jesus is strong enough to restore God's people. Did you catch this here? How many, how many apostles does he appoint? Twelve. Why? How many tribes are there in Israel? Twelve. He's making a statement, all right? Like, in case the religious leaders were wondering, what's going on? Who does this guy think he is? He comes right out the gate and says, listen, new Israel's here, right? Old Israel is gone. New Israel's here. You got 12 tribes? That's the past. I got 12 apostles. Let's go. Jesus is staying very clearly to the religious rule. Times have changed. The restoration of all God's people is here. And they would have looked to David. They would have looked to King David and said, he is the one. He's the great king. But David wasn't strong enough to keep the people of Israel together, much less his own family, which was a mess for most of his life. But Jesus is stronger than David. Jesus is stronger than David and able to restore all of God's people, even to restart them anew. But does God, does Christ restore you? Jesus is strong enough to redeem God's place. You see it? Right? Joshua is who they would have pointed to as the great warrior, the one who would conquer and take ground. But Jesus has come with enough strength to, to cast out all the forces of darkness. Right? Joshua came on the scene and he wasn't able to fully clear the land of God's people. But Jesus comes on the scene and everyone obeys and flees. He is the victorious one. He is the powerful one, the strong man able to take back God's place. Strong enough to redeem. Does he redeem you? Jesus is strong enough to realize God's plan, to bring it about. But he alone can realize the plan of the Father to gather lost sons and daughters. That's what God's after. Do you see it, right? He's not pressured by cultural norms and expectations. Maybe the leaders of this day would have looked to Adam, the first man, and said he is the one who set the stage for us. But Jesus is far greater than Adam. I mean, Adam's family collapsed upon itself and then he was banished from the garden in the beginning. Jesus is gathering a new family that will stand through the ages, walking them into his kingdom. Jesus is powerful enough to realize God's plan, which is you, daughter, you, son, reconciled to the Father. Have you been reconciled? King Jesus doesn't use his power to push like the crowds. He doesn't use his power to pressure like family would. He doesn't use power to plaster a label on something to make it go away. But rather his strength calls to you. His power invites you to see the way he's inviting you by love to gather you into the family of God. He desires you. He's calling you. And maybe for the first time today, maybe for the thousandth time on a Sunday, would you receive him? And all of his power. John, the one whom Jesus loved, as he says, 
begins his own gospel like this, but to all who would receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Born, not of blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, not by your strength, born by faith, resting in Jesus and all of his power. Will you receive him today? Let's pray. Father, we, we long to be the restored, the redeemed, the reconciled, the people who receive your son. So often our hearts are hard. So often our desires are elsewhere. But yet you set your desire on us. And you call us. Would you give the people here today, would you give the people listening online or on a podcast the faith and the grace to be able to receive you, Jesus, in all your power? It's in your precious name I pray. Amen.